Welcome, everyone. Um, I will be reading from Hebrews 7, the whole chapter. Um, it's a bit long, but I encourage you to follow along because it's very interesting. <laughs> All right, so verse 1 reads, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham portioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, resembling the Son of God. He continues as a priest forever. See how great this man is, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descendants of Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descendants from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him, who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal man, but in the other case, by the one to whom it testifies that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. If perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of priesthood, there is necessarily a change of the law as well. For the one whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, for which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. It becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Whom has who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of, another, of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law was made for the law has made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it, is, uh, and it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are forever a priest. This makes Jesus a guarantor of, our, of a better covenant. The former priests were made many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in the office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people. 
since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the, of, but the, word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's a great delight uh, to be with you today. Please make sure you have the new sheet which has that Bible reading handy. And also you'll see the title of the sermon, which is, You Need a Great High Priest Today. Well, I wonder if you do like puzzles, word puzzles, jigsaw puzzles, number puzzles. Do you like noticing clues and then trying to make sense of the bigger picture? If you like puzzles, you'll like Hebrews 7. How on earth does this chapter fit into the Bible? It seems very remote. And how on earth does this chapter help us know more of the Lord Jesus Christ? And what difference does it make? Well, as a matter of fact, all the clues are there. We just need to see them. I hope to show you the important clues, so please fasten your seatbelt, ignore your mobile phone, focus on the Bible passage, and hang on to your hat as we delve into the detail of this chapter and delve into the Old Testament. We are looking for four vital clues, four vital clues. Hebrews chapter 7 refers back to Genesis chapter 14. Let me read just a few words from Genesis 14. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. There were two people in the Old Testament, Melchizedek and Job, who were not members of God's people, and yet who feared and worshipped and served God. We read in Hebrews chapter 7, this Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. That is the first clue. Because among the people of God, you couldn't be the king and a priest. They had a very firm separation of powers and one tribe produced the kings and another tribe, the tribe of Aaron, produced the priests. First clue, Melchizedek was a king and a priest. He was, furthermore, a forever priest. Verse 3, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. 
Well, you not, may not be convinced by that argument, but if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that so often in the Old Testament when someone's introduced, their ancestry is given, so you know where they belong. But we no idea who Melchizedek's mummy and daddy were, and we never read that he died. So that's a kind of literary feature in the Old Testament. And the writer of Hebrews is making a theological point out of it. Now, that's not the kind of thing you and I would do on a Tuesday, but it actually fits quite well into the Bible world view. And this forever priest is greater than Abram. For uh, he blessed Abram, and as our passage tells us, the greater blesses the lesser. He blessed Abraham, and Abraham paid him, basically. So if you bless someone, you're greater than they are. And if they pay you for the blessing, uh, then they show that they've received a gift from you. So we read in uh, Hebrews chapter 7, just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abram gave him a tenth of the plunder. And then the contrast is between Melchizedek as king and priest and the priests of the Jewish people of the tribe of Aaron and Levi. They, uh, those descendants of Levi who become priests, they collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. This man, Melchizedek, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And you might even say, verse 9, that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Well, to say that someone is greater than Abraham is to make a massive claim, isn't it? because Abraham is such a central person in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. He's the one to whom God made the promise of the land and that he would make him a great nation and a blessing to all the nations. So to say that Melchizedek is greater than, than Abraham is to make a massive claim. That's the third clue, as a matter of fact. So first clue, Melchizedek was a king and a priest Next clue, he was a forever priest. Third clue, he was greater than Abraham. Now, the middle section in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 7 develops that theme that uh, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Uh, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, the Jewish priesthood, why then was there still need for another priest to come in the order of Melchizedek not in the order of Aaron. He of whom these things said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe, the tribe of Judah, has ever served at the altar. For it's clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we've said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. 
one who's become a priest not on the basis of regulation about his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. And here is the fourth clue, for it is declared in Psalm 110, God says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, as a matter of fact, Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And here are two verses from that psalm, which if you know your New Testament, you will remember. The first one is, sit at my right hand, God says, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. There is God speaking to the Messiah to come. That's actually quoted in Hebrews 1.13. And another verse from Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So notice Psalm 110, which comes many years after the time of Abraham and Melchizedek, God in Psalm 110 promises someone who will be both a king and a priest. Listen to the words again. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So, a king and the Lord has sworn you're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, a priest. So, if you read the Old Testament very, very carefully, you'd get to the end and you'd think, where is this king and priest? Why hasn't God provided what he promised? Someone who would be a king and a priest. And this declaration, you're a priest forever, in the order of Melchizedek, was made not without, verse 20, an oath, that is, a solemn promise or solemn statement. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, well, in the in the Jewish system, in the temple and the tabernacle, there were many priests. There have been many of the Jewish priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God the Father through him, for he always lives to intercede for them Pray for them. So, four clues. We're waiting for a king and priest who will be a forever priest greater than Abraham and like Melchizedek. Let me put it simply. When we think of Melchizedek, we then think of who Jesus was, a king and a priest, and a priest forever. Who Jesus was. When we think of the Jewish system 
of priests and sacrifices and temple. That explains what Jesus came to do. For we don't read of Melchizedek offering a sacrifice, but that offering a sacrifice is exactly what the priests in the temple did. And that's what Jesus came to do, uh, not an animal sacrifice, but of course the sacrifice of himself. And then we return to the idea of Melchizedek because unlike the Jewish priests, uh, Melchizedek, if you like, lasts forever in a literary sense, but Jesus is a priest forever who intercedes for us. Now, one of the questions uh, that I'm frequently asked is why God waited so long to send the Messiah? You see, imagine uh, Adam and Eve have stuffed it up in the garden. They've got some children. Perhaps one of the grandchildren could have been the Messiah. That would have made the Bible much shorter, wouldn't it? That'd be not, not, not a lot of Old Testament. Imagine if you jumped from Genesis 4, for example, to Matthew 1. I mean, think of the ink we would have saved over the years and the paper we could have used for some other purpose. So why did God wait so long to send the Messiah? Well, I think one answer which I find helpful is that God had so much to teach his people before the Messiah came. If you like, the Old Testament is rather like primary school, the, thing you, the, the place you need to go to learn lots of things before you go to secondary school. So here are some of the things you learn in the Old Testament. God, there's only one God, creator, ruler and giver and provider and judge and saviour. Uh, this one God made a covenant, a promise to his people. Uh, people are told not to worship other gods and it, it took the folk in the Old Testament <laughs> a century, a, a, a millennium and a half to learn that lesson. Uh, and they also learnt from, uh, from, from the people of God during the time of the Old Testament that they would fail again and again and yet God would forgive them again and again. What a great thing to learn. They were called to be holy as God is holy and God provided priests and sacrifices for forgiveness and to have fellowship with them. And God would speak to them through Moses and all the prophets and through the teachers of wisdom. And he was a promise in primary school. One day God would come to them in person on the day of the Lord and they would have fellowship with him and serve him and enjoy him and the fallen creation would be restored. So, the Old Testament history and the Old Testament promises, words and works of God pointed forward to the coming of Christ. They're all signs of the Christ to come. As Jesus said, John 5:39, the Old Testament scriptures witnessed about me. And as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all, all of God's promises find their yes in Christ. But of course, as you'll know, when Christ came, many of God's people who knew the Old Testament really well didn't recognize him, did not see him as the promised Messiah and rejected him, God's 
only son. But how lovely to read in Luke's gospel of some who did welcome him when Mary and Joseph took the little baby Jesus to the temple. Simeon said, Sovereign Lord, as you've promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And uh, Anna, a prophet, who was 84 years old. She never left the temple, we read in Luke 2, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying, coming up to them, that is to Simeon and Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus. She gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Just a few comments about the Old Testament. I notice that people who read the New Testament but don't know the Old Testament tend to misunderstand the New Testament because they have little option other than to try and attach the New Testament to their own culture to make it answers their, answer their questions rather than seeing it firstly as the fulfillment of Old Testament ideas, promises, hopes, and expectations. And people who don't know the Old Testament are often impatient for God to act. For we learn in the Old Testament that God waited 2,000 years before he raised up the significant descendant of Abraham he'd promised the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the Old Testament, people learn to wait patiently on God and what a really important that lesson is for us in a get it now society. One of the great challenges I think in being a Christian for a long time is waiting on God and believing that he will do what he has promised though he is not yet doing it. That's a vital lesson to learn. A king and priest, a forever priest, greater than Abraham, and promised in Psalm 110. Well, many of us know what it's like to move to a new country, a different place, a different suburb. You, the further you move, the more you need to find people you need. Uh, you need someone to sell you food, you need a doctor, you need someone who makes mobile phones and computers. You need someone to, bear, to buy clothes. You need somewhere to buy beauty. I think they're called beauticians. You need somewhere to buy shoes and petrol and deodorant and so forth. You certainly need a barista and you may need a barrister. So who else do you need? Well, the book of Hebrews tells us again and again, you need a great high priest today. That's who you need. You may know that you need God. That is true, you do. You may know that you need the Holy Spirit. That is true. You may know that you need Jesus as Savior and Shepherd and King and Lord. And that is true. 
But do you know that you need Jesus as your high priest? You need a great high priest. And Jesus is the high priest provided by God. Actually, everyone needs a priest. Everyone all around the world needs Jesus, the high priest appointed for us by God. I preached on Hebrews a number of years ago here at St. Jude's and somebody kindly gave me a mug. Where are you, Michael? I need a great high priest today. I need a great high priest today. You need a great high priest today. Why? Let's focus on the last few verses of that chapter. Let's pick it up at verse 24. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Now, Jesus died uh, and made a single sacrifice for sin, so the sacrifice has been offered, but he still has a permanent priesthood, Therefore, verse 25, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him. You see, if we just had a Jesus who'd died and rose again uh, 2,000 years ago, our sins would be forgiven, but Jesus would not be changing us and saving us completely. Jesus is the Savior, not just because he died to save us, but because he lives to save us from the very right hand of God, the most powerful place in the universe. And his power, which he receives from God, is devoted to transforming us, or as the writer puts it, saving us completely. And if Jesus were not alive now, acting as high priest, praying for us, and working to save us completely, we would not continue as Christians for a moment. It's only because we're kept by the mighty power of God and the mighty power of Jesus, our high priest, who is at the right hand of God, who prays for us, that he, 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 and he alone is able to save us completely. Will you be a Christian until the day you die? Only if Jesus is your great high priest. Verse 26, such a great high priest truly meets our need. Now, earlier in Hebrews, we read, we read about the sympathy of Jesus, that he's able to empathize or sympathize with our weakness, and that is true. But here the point is a different one, a complementary point. That is, we have a high priest who truly meets our need because he is holy, blameless, pure, apart from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And he doesn't need to offer a sacrifice for himself. On the contrary, uh, he made a sacrifice for us. A sacrifice, he sacrificed for their sins once for all, when he offered himself.
By his constant and eternal intercession, by his praying, he keeps us safe, protects us from our own internal evil, protects us from the evil of others and from Satan, the evil one, and sanctifies us, transforms us, makes us holy more and more like him. And we often feel that our own prayers are weak and don't get very far. But you see, we tag our prayers onto the great prayer of Jesus. We, we add our weak prayers to the powerful and constant and eternal prayer of Jesus. And God the Father hears our prayers from the lips of Jesus, in the power of Jesus. So what we feel is so weak is actually so powerful because we're part of Christ's body, we're members of Christ, we're part of God's people and Jesus is our high priest and he's a powerful prayer, not on earth but high above all things. So others may pray for you and their prayers are made effective by Christ's prayers. Our prayers are weak but they're empowered by Christ's powerful prayers. We may feel far from God when we pray, but Christ, our high priest, is seated at the right hand of God. Do you know you need a great high priest? Or do you think you can manage without one? Get along quite happily. Well, that would be foolish ignorance and foolish pride and foolish ingratitude. For God has provided just the one you need, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be our great high priest. How else dare we pray? How else dare we come into the presence of God? Hebrews 10. We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. And since we have a great priest set over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and the full assurance that faith brings. If you pray without the consciousness of Christ's sacrifice and Christ as priest, you'll be nervous about your praying and worry that you're not actually getting to the ears of God. But if you base your prayer on the certainty of Christ's once for all sacrifice and his present powerful prayer for you, then you'll come into God's presence with confidence and assurance. We all need a great high priest today and every day. I need a great high priest today and you need a great high priest today. We're going to pray together a prayer from the screen in which we praise and worship Lord, the Lord Jesus as a, our great high priest. So, 
we pray these words together. Lord Jesus, we worship you as a great high priest. God, your Father, appointed you as our great high priest in Psalm 110 with these words, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You offered yourself as a sacrifice for our sins once for all on the cross. You empathize with our weakness. You live forever to intercede for us at the Father's right hand. You are holy, pure and blameless and exalted above the heavens. We worship you as our great high priest. We praise you as our great high priest. We need you as our great high priest. We trust you as our great high priest. Through you we draw near to our great God and Father. We praise you now and forever. Amen. <laughs>